0: So let's get into the message rooms. New series. I love new series. It's kind of like having a new baby. It's uh, just so exciting and exhausting (laughs) to get it going. So, but I believe this is going to be helpful to us. And I know it's one of those messages that I would like to preach to my younger self. (laughs) It's called Know Thyself is the series. Week one: accepting blame when it's deserved. We're just going to start out with the most negative part and get it out of the way because we got some very positive things to talk about and how, how, how this works. Tasha Urich has made a career out of studying self-awareness. Uh, she writes about it in her book Insight, why we're not as self-aware as we think and how seeing ourselves clearly helps us succeed at work and life. She and her, her, her team, they surveyed uh, thousands of, of, of people and analyzed thousands. They, they analyzed 800 scientific studies. And, and as they conducted these dozens of in-depth interviews, one of their early conclusions was that 95% of people think they're self-aware. But the real number is closer to 10 to 15%. How many of you know someone that you wish had better self-awareness? Raise your hand. You know someone you wish had better? Raise it real high. Come on. Get it way up there. How many of you? Come on, you're not being you're not being self-aware. <laughs> How many? Of you, now, right, leave them out. You got work with me. Work with me. Have <laughs> you known someone that you wish had more self-awareness? Okay. Uh, now look around. Look around. hands. Up. How many of you realize that some of those hands are raised up about you? <laughs> that you're who they have in mind. <laughs> uh, she found that no matter how hard we try, it's really challenging to excavate our unconscious thoughts and feelings and motives and come up with what is really true. Because so much, so much is hidden from our conscious awareness and we end up inventing answers that feel true but are often very wrong. One example, uh, uh, one example was a group of psychologists set up a table in fr- front of a department store in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan and uh, they had uh, four pairs of pantyhose lined up, uh, uh, two on the left side, two on the right side, right? two on the left side, yeah right side, right, left right. And um, uh, psychologists have discovered for years that when it comes to products we have a bias toward picking products on the right. We just naturally go to the right when we pick, up, when we pick out products. Nobody knows why, but that's just what we do. And so um, these four different pairs of pantyhose were all identical. There was no difference. Four to one, they picked out the, the pantyhose on the far right, and each of them, when interviewed, said they looked to be of much higher quality. <laughs> and they were all the same. That's how, that's, how, that's how challenging it is to be really, truly self-aware. People who are self-aware, they found are more fulfilled, they have stronger relationships, they're more creative, they're more confident and better communicators, they're less likely to lie, cheat and steal, they perform better at work and are more promotable, and they're more effective leaders with more profitable companies. In the world of self-awareness, there are two types of people they found, those who think they're self-aware and those who actually are. (laughs) Ed Young Jr. had a, a sermon called, you know, after I we actually picked this title weeks ago when we had our sermon planning retreat, and then I start looking around to see well who's preached on this before. Maybe I can save a lot of work, you know. Somebody's already preached. Well, Ed Young had a ser- has a series on it, and uh, uh, and uh, I, I really fit, didn't feel to go the direction he went, but he had he had an interesting introduction. It's kind of I kind of turned it into the old you might be a, you know you might be a redneck if. Thing, but I, I said it, I redid re, re it a little bit, and it's you might be self unaware if you post. Now, this is Ed Young, so don't get mad at me. Ed Young said these things. You post an excessive amount of selfies, <laughs> you constantly humble brag. You might be self unaware. You might be self unaware if you're never wrong. You might be self unaware if you almost never take advice. You might be self-unaware if you think people are always thinking about you. (laughs) You might be self-unaware if you don't have a filter, you know. You just say whatever comes to your mind. I just tell it like it is, you say. (laughs) Uh, You might be self-unaware if whenever you have an issue it's someone else's fault. You might be self-unaware if you wear outfits that don't complement your age, body, or body type. (laughs) You might be Self-aware, if you think this sermon is not for you. <laughs> but here's a tragic story, one that's more serious than this introduction. A serious, tragic story of self-awareness and lack of self-awareness. And truly, it's true. Lack of self-awareness creates really broken, great brokenness in our lives, or else we wouldn't want to bother to preach about it if it just was something that didn't really matter that much. It's really hard, by the way, and we're going to explore that the next three weeks. This is really hard. It might be the hardest thing we do as humans is to be self-aware. It might be the most, I, 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 I would say it is for me. I would say it's absolutely the hardest thing for me is to be self-aware, and, and I'm pretty, I'm sure, John, that I'm part of the uh, 85%, <laughs> not the 15%. So I don't come from a place of having figured this out. I come from a place of getting to the point where I realize how critical it is and how important it is that we, not that we, not that we get, get it all right, but that we get in the game. And we get in the process of being people who are always trying to be self-aware. Let me read a text to you now. Well, Let me tell you the story first of David and Bathsheba. Many of you have been around the church, you're familiar with the story of, uh, it's 2 it like Samuel chapter 11. King David is the king of Israel, and we know what a great man he is. We know what an awesome man is. That should be encouraging to you when you, when you see what, how much he struggled with self-awareness. It should encourage all of us that, uh, that it doesn't mean we're necessarily bad people, but it just means we can get very blind to our own actions and our own feelings and our own thoughts. So um, the Bible says it was time for kings to go out to battle. We don't really know why David says David stayed in Jerusalem, and we don't really know why he stayed in Jerusalem. Maybe he didn't feel well. Maybe maybe he he just uh, had decided to delegate. Maybe he, we know he and Joab didn't always get along. Maybe they'd had a had a fight, an argument. Or maybe maybe Joab had said you you know we're better off without you. And I don't know. Maybe he was. We don't know. The Bible just kind of leaves that open for us to, to to speculate. So he's walking up on his roof one day, and he looks down in the valley below, and there in the river was uh, a woman bathing out in the open, which I guess they did in those days. And so, you some of you know the story. He he is feels attracted to her. He's lonely. He's he's all those things, and, and then he calls her to the to the palace, and what proceeds as she goes back home lets him know a few days later that she's pregnant and he has a problem he has a big problem he's impregnated a woman which uh, those days was probably pretty normal for kings to kind of take what they wanted in, the, in life that was probably part of what it was like to be a king in that culture but um, he decides that he's going to try to cover up his sin and he calls her husband home from the battle her husband arrives in the battle he calls him home and hoping that he will he will will be with his wife, and the, the, uh, everyone will think that that the baby is her his his well Uriah wouldn't refuse Uriah slept on the porch, and David even brought him to the castle, you know served him some some fine alcohol, <laughs> and he still would not would not would not uh, uh, in his mind dishonor himself by by sleeping with his wife when the men that he served with and, pl- and fought with were in the battle. And so David, was uh, his plan wasn't working at all. So he sends a message to Joab, and he says to Joab, I, I um, uh, m- m- put, put, put Uriah in a strategic place, close to the front line of the battle, move close to the wall, and... Uh, let's see what happens sure enough Uriah was killed and so he brings her to the palace and he thinks everything's, everything's cool everything's all covered up can you imagine the lack of self-awareness that it would t- to even do this much <laughs> to go this far but then we see this amazing story Second Samuel chapter 12 verse 17 1 through 7 I mean the Lord sent Nathan to David Nathan was a prophet when he came to him he said to there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who came to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are man. Now I was ready to bail out on this story as I was studying it as an illustration for a lack of self-awareness and self-knowledge. I'm thinking David's reaction to the lamb story was a good, it was just a good cover-up, you know. Uh, it was a good cover-up to throw the prophet off his trail. But then I looked at the story again and I read 2 Samuel twelve five. David burned with anger against the man. David really didn't make the correlation. That he had just taken a man, probably a poor man, who had a wife, and he had dozens of, I don't remember exactly how many wives, he had several wives and concubines, and he was the king, and he had done this thing, and... Yet, when he hears a story about a man taking a lamb from a poor man, he burned with anger. He really felt it. It, it. It's so accurate that David was suffering acute self-knowledge blindness. David wasn't feeling the appropriate over emotion over what he had just done. So it's obvious we need to talk about what happens when we lose ourselves in the blame game and the comparison trap. That's the first thing I want to talk to you about today with this subject. Losing ourselves in the blame game, in the comparison trap. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says it this way. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Two things are really clear in the story of King David and Bathsheba and and the Uriah scandal. Number one, King David had absolutely defined something he would never do while living in an unconscious state of something worse. He, 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 had, uh, he, he had done something that he would never do if he wasn't already, had, if he didn't already have, a uh, let me say it better, he did something he would have, not, would have not done had he not already been living with a great deal of self-unawareness. If he had not already been in that state, uh, secondly, King David had his reasons for doing what he did. The, the, the rich man who slaughtered the poor man's lamb wasn't just a thief and a murderer. He had his reasons. The Bible said, uh, or Edwin Cole said, we judge others by what they do, ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by what they do, ourselves by intention." I can guarantee you David had rationalized his decision. I can guarantee you the man who took the other man's lamb had rationalized his decision. Almost no one goes, you know, I'm going to do something really evil today. I'm going to be a real jerk today. I I just feel like being a real jerk. I just feel like really being unkind. I just feel like really being a terrible person today. Any of you ever ever just decide you want to be a terrible person? Probably somebody here is going to raise your hand and say, yeah. Me. I I often decide just to be a terrible person. No, we have our reasons. We have our reasons for doing what we do. That's that's what causes us to be self-unaware. And that's why I love that quote by Ed Cole, we judge judge others by what we do ourselves by our intentions. So if you're hoping someone else is listening, not now, you are (laughs) self-unaware. Did did King David play the blame game? I I think he probably probably was, uh, I'm I'm lonely. It was time for kings to go to battle, but David stayed in Jerusalem. We can only speculate why. David probably said, I I, I was lonely. David probably might have said, this is an unfair and overwhelming temptation, especially for a king. This was unfair. Bathsheba bathing out in public, that was unfair. She shouldn't have done that. He might have said, "She exploited my weaknesses, and she created this predicament." You ever, you ever do something like that? You know, what am I supposed to do? I got this mouse. I'm holding onto my computer, and all those, all those images are in there that I know, that I know I shouldn't look at. But it's, it's unfair. It's unfair that a man has to have this box, and inside this box is all kinds of images that, that he would love to look at. That's not fair. God, it's not fair that you allow me to have that kind of of, of vulnerability and temptation. He might have said to himself, Uriah obviously didn't love her and he obviously didn't have a good marriage. By the way, he came home and he didn't even go in the house. Obviously there was something really, really broken about their marriage, right? Why else would he sleep on the front porch? And... Finally, he might have said, you know, one of the things they knew in battle strategy, you never went up close to the wall of the city that you were attacking unless you had already already were sure that you had sent enough armaments over the wall that, that, the, that, that people were backed away from the wall. Uh, Uriah was actually killed when, 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 uh, when someone dropped something on his head. So soldiers that were smart in battle never went to the wall. So I, th- I think David probably might have said to himself, why did Uriah run over the wall? He obviously wasn't a smart soldier. What an idiot. What an idiot that he, that he ran up next to the wall. I don't care what the commander said. A good soldier wouldn't go over to the wall. I, I don't know that David said all these things. We don't know. We have to speculate. But he was so blind to his own sin, I think he must have had a conversation with himself along those lines. Something in David's self-awareness apparatus was already broken before the event unfolded, I was trying to say a minute ago. It's It's easy for us to say I'll never do what he did, but that's missing the point. He was already not where he should have been. What are the patterns of your life today? What's the emotional, relational dynamics that keep recurring in your life? What's the fruit? Broken relationships, constantly changing churches, you know, it, 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 constantly trying to find the perfect church, the right church, the right pastor, the right preacher, loss of intimacy in your marriage. You know, sometimes in life we have to come to the point that we realize the common denominator in all of our broken experiences and the one who's always there is us. <laughs> right? Tennessee Williams says, there comes a time when you look into the mirror and you realize that what you see is all you'll ever be. And then you accept it or you kill yourself. Or you stop looking in mirrors. <laughs> Without God, and here, here's the hope today, and we're going to get to the hope in a minute. Without God, Jesus, and the beautiful church of Jesus Christ functioning as it should, Tennessee Williams is Correct but you have god you have jesus and the hope of a beautifully functioning church at your disposal so we're ready to talk about we're ready to talk about putting down your magnifying glass and picking up your mirror that's what I'm inviting you to do in the series put down your magnifying glass and pick up your mirror take a break from studying everyone else take a break from studying what's wrong with everyone else take a break from studying what's wrong with the institutions that you're part of the employer the government, your church, the big C church not that those conversations should never happen but if you really want to change the world put down your magnifying glass, pick up your mirror Secondly, I want to talk to you about embracing a radical encounter with truth and grace. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, you know, we're, we're coming out of a strengths-finders culture. Um, you know, we've, we, we've been taught in the last, I would say, 30 years or so, that we all need to discover our strengths and then ignore our weaknesses and we need to flow in the area of our strengths and that's good advice mostly especially with your career that you find out what your strengths are and you flow in your strengths but that misses some very important things and I am going to get to that in a minute what I think that's missing when you only focus on your strengths you should know your strengths that's by the way and you should learn to delegate in areas of your weakness we're moving out of the strength finders culture, and I'm not sure what this next thing is going to become. We're moving into the um, call out cancel culture, which just seems to be the opposite of the strength finders culture. And I'm not sure where that's going to take us, but that certainly has its, its weaknesses. This, the call out culture and the cancel culture, while the Bible does um, have an element of call out and cancel in it, it, by the way, it does. God has a God, there's some many many verses about uh, well, God will call you out and God will cancel you. There's there's verses about that, by the way. It's not it's not a totally false doctrine, but the way it's being presented, there's two problems two problems with the current call out and cancel culture. Is one one is g- humans are the highest authority, and whoever has the biggest megaphone is the highest authority to decide what is sinful, and what should be called out, and who should be canceled. That's the first problem. As Christians, there's, there's a call-out-and-cancel dimension to the Christian life. Yes, there is, but God is the ultimate authority, and Scripture is the ultimate authority to which anyone, the weakest, the weakest Christian, the weakest person, the most in, insignificant person, can appeal to Scripture no matter who is wielding it and appeal to what it truly says. So there's a higher authority, there's a transcendent wisdom that controls the the conviction. And the second problem with cancel culture and call out culture is there's no, as far as I can see, no forgiveness and no mercy and no grace. And God is filled with abundant forgiveness, mercy and grace and that is actually reconciliation is what He prefers. So, never mind about that. Here's another reason, though, that we we cannot only be strength finders. Our sins, as well as our goodness, represent strengths that need shaping, balancing, and ultimately incorporating into our lives. You know, I suspect that unsanctified mercy and niceness unsanctified, unbalanced mercy, has destroyed as many lives as mean-spirited judgmentalism. I'm not commending mean-spirited judgmentalism, but your, your, your your strengths and your weakness are part of a continuum. They're part of the same thing. You may be a person who has a lot of mercy and a lot of grace, but that's also when taken out of balance, it becomes a liability. It becomes a cruel thing when you have, when you have mercy and grace that's, out of, that's not brought into balance and you don't have true self-awareness about it. We have to celebrate the light in ourselves and the darkness because the darkness in me represents something that is a powerful thing that if I sanctify it and let God shape it, it will become an important part of what I bring to the kingdom of God and how I help the kingdom of God grow. You know, I, 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 uh, I guess the worst thing any of us can think of is someone who would kill another person. That would be kind of, that's kind of the worst thing I can think of, is someone to actually physically kill another person. I want you to know something if I'm in a really dangerous situation if I'm really in a place where I'm surrounded by bad characters who want to take me out I want a person with me who's capable of killing someone so you you see what I mean when I I mean and and Carl Jung talked about this He he called it the shadow he talks about incorporating your shadow into your personality you see what I mean we, we, the, the sinful area of our life is not something over there that we just need to get rid of. It's something that we need to cover with the blood of Jesus, sanctify it, and transform it. We're going to talk about Apostle Paul when I end the sermon today, but Apostle Paul, this man who was fearless, so fearless that he would kill you, became so fearless that he would let himself be killed because his... his, 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 uh, his uh, Uh, His way of being was transformed by the power of Christ. That's why we need to stop telling people this nonsense of don't talk about your sins. We don't want to talk about anybody's sins. We just want to talk about forgiveness. No, we need to talk about the things that God wants to change. The things that God wants to transform. The things because your very sins are the things that God wants to transform to make them into something powerful and dynamic that will change the, the world that you live in. Now that is a very, I'm going to tell you that's a very deep thought. Not because I said it, but it's a very deep thought. And you need to go home and think about it for about two hours. Because it's not a simple thought. The idea that knowing my sin is important. It's as important as knowing my goodness. Because they're two sides of the same coin. Got it? William Sparks is a psychologist in North Carolina. And he tells of this amazing encounter with a Dr. Jerry Harvey. Dr. Jerry Harvey was really a colorful guy. He was a professor, a psychology professor at George Washington University. Um, He was a a Bible-thumping Southern Baptist and an expletive-using Jungian psychologist. That is a weird combination. Right? You know? And uh, William uh, uh, William Sparks Dr. Harvey has uh, since gone on and he's passed away but uh, William Sparks is still around. William Sparks was a 27 year old young man who uh, decided to become a psychologist and decided to go to George Washington University where and, and enrolled in Dr. Harvey's class. And uh, the, the dark side of the story is uh, William Sparks' was go- who had just come out of a divorce and part of, his, part of his reason for going into this field was to figure things out and he was going to block out what had happened, he's going to go on with his life so he, he goes there and uh, uh, th- they all have to write a paper the first thing Dr. Harvey has his class to do is write a paper and then it came time to pass out the grades and uh, Dr. Harvey sets the class in a circle and he passes everybody their grade. And then he gets to, William, um, to uh, William Sparks, and he says, you have to come to my office to get your grade. That's not usually a good thing when you have to go to the professor's office. So he, he goes to Professor uh, Harvey's office a few days later, a day later, whatever, to get his grade, and he knocks on the door, he walks in. Har- Dr. Harvey's reading his Bible. He's sitting over the desk reading his Bible, and, and he um, he he puts his Bible down. He looks over. He says, "Son, what are we here to talk about?" And he said, "My paper." And he goes, "Nope, we're not here to talk about your paper." Oh, oh so you want my feedback on the class? He said, because he said he, he said honestly, I was sitting there and I was thinking as I looked out the window and I saw the White House in the distance. I was thinking, I had heard that Dr. Harvey was going to retire in the next few years and he might be looking for a replacement. And he's called me in today to interview me and let me know that I may be the mentor. He may be in a, want to go to a mentoring relationship. And uh, William Blake later said, I was in the fog of illusion. And uh, Dr. Harvey said, I don't give a expletive, about your feedback. Um, He said, well, okay, you want to talk about my divorce? Because he had written in this paper all about his divorce and his codependent relationship with his wife and how much she was a codependent to him. Uh, Dr. Harvey said, no, I haven't called to talk to you about your divorce. I've called you in here to talk about you. I'm going to give you, by the way, I'm going to give you an A on your paper. But I'm going to give you an F in life. Yeah, your ex-wife is codependent, he said. But you created this dysfunction. the function. He said, number one, I'll bet you always had to have the last word in every argument. Number two, I'll bet you gave unsolicited and unwanted advice. Number three... I'll bet when you had an argument, you were always right, and she was always had to be wrong. Blake's sitting there checking off everyone. Yep, 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 that's true. And number four, you expect me to feel sorry for you. But I don't feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for her. (laughs) And by the way, son, I feel like I owe you a little more feedback. Son, you have a South Carolina chip on your shoulder that's going to make it difficult for you to absorb the kind of feedback I'm going to give you in this class, so I don't think you're going to get past me. But if you will take the rest of this class, and I quote, to figure out how in the blank you did that to her, you will do yourself and the rest of the world a great big favor whether you graduate from this program or not. Then he turned his back to uh, William Blake. William Sparks, rather. He turned his back to him and starts to hum Amazing Grace. (laughs) William Sparks said he got all his buddies together and they went to a bar in northern Virginia that night and drank and talked about what a horrible person that professor was and how he he dared call himself a Christian and be that judgmental. He said it wasn't until sometime later that one day... He said, I went into my bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I said to myself, for the first time in my life, he's right. He's right. And that conversation changed his life. And now he teaches an incredible course on (laughs) self-awareness. Let me close with this. When we deserve to blame... And this is the truth, man. This is so true. God's mercy will rewrite our story. A.W. Tozer said, For the Christian, humility is absolutely indispensable. Without it, there can be no self-knowledge, no repentance, no faith, and no salvation. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up in honor. I want to challenge you and I and I want to join you in turning the searing and often accurate discernment I have toward others onto myself. I want to challenge you to assume a posture and this is difficult because everything in society for the last several years has taught you not to do this. But I want to say biblically we're taught to assume a posture of mourning and begin a season of lament over what God has revealed to us. Now, God hasn't revealed something to all of you today. This is not... We're all in different places with this. So I'm not saying that everybody must do this, but you need to consider. It's true, we should see our sins under the blood, but pretending they don't exist, refusing to be humble by their existence and making no amendment of behavior, isn't the same thing. You can still see them under the blood. Uh, The other day, I, I told this story, I was going 47 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone. And a police officer pulled me over. Sherry had already been telling me, Phil, you drive too fast in town. I know I don't drive too fast. But with the blue lights, I don't argue as much. (laughs) And that officer, I think I told you the other day in the sermon, the officer came up to the window... And uh, I, I drive down that road all the time, so I, I know the neighbors have been calling on me and others for <laughs> going too fast down the street. And uh, he came to the window, and like I said the other day, he said, I tell you what, I'm going to give you a big warning. That's all I'm going to give you is a big warning. What, what did he What did he show me? He showed me grace. He showed me mercy. He didn't, you know... I, in god 's vernacular he put my sin under the blood but but is, is my attitude oh i didn 't do it i i i, did, I didn 't have a problem no that 's not my attitude and and when I drive down that street now i I actually put my i put my uh, 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 cruise control on thirty so it 'll force me to go thirty miles an hour that grace and mercy was not there so I would ignore my sin. That grace and mercy was there to remind me of my sins so I would, I would stop her. you know what if a ball comes rolling out in the street and I'm going 47 miles an hour that would ruin my life and the life of that family whose child I just killed I'm telling you this, some of this stuff is serious stuff some of it's trivial but some of this stuff is serious stuff, some of this stuff is about the lives of people and we, we've, got to, we've got to bring the doctrine of grace back into the balance that the Bible brings it into. We must. And it's because it's such a beautiful doctrine. Because it, re, you know, you, it, it, but then there's a, p- a point where we get up from the place of lament, as David did. We, I'm going to read a little, a little bit of the story in the ending here today. And uh, we get up from the place of lament and repentance And watch God rewrite our story. God doesn't want you to stay in mourning over your sin for the rest of your life. God doesn't want you to stay in mourning over your sin for weeks and weeks at a time. Or days and days at a time. No, not... not, Think about... Think about John Newton. Think about... I'm talking about God rewriting your story. John Newton repented of being a slave trader. He repented of being... Think how many people's lives he ruined... Think of how many people either died on those voyages or spent the rest of their life enslaved and abused. John Newton became a pastor. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton joined with William Wilberforce, the parliamentarian, and abolished the first country in the world to abolish slavery. Mercy and grace rewrote his life after he repented of his sins. Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about how many lives he ruined. He went around putting Christians in prison, having their property taken away from them, and putting them to death. Apostle Paul repented of his sin. He acknowledged his transgression. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. And when you think of Paul today, you don't even think about Anybody he ever put to death. You don't even think about the horrible atrocities he committed. You think of the greatest apostle who ever lived, who taught us what grace really was. You're thinking of the greatest man who ever lived, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, because grace and mercy rewrites the life of a humble man or woman. Finally, there's David to Samuel Twelve nineteen. the Lord said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, too bad. You're a jerk. No. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Oh my goodness. That, that should send chills down your spine. The Lord has, the minute he said, I have sinned, the prophet said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. 2 Samuel 12:20. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He wasn't going to spend the rest of his life in depression over his sin. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. 2 Samuel 12, 24 said Bathsheba gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. What came out of his sin and his repentance and his humility was the wisest man who ever lived besides Jesus. What, if you will humble yourself today underneath those things whether it's little, big, I don't care. If you will humble yourself under what God, the Holy Spirit, will reveal to you and the the wonderful people who will bring into your life He will reveal to you. If you will humble yourself to that that thing that you don't want to talk about and you don't want to face maybe. If you will humble yourself, God will give you the gift of wisdom. He will give you the gift of wisdom and insight. And I know I'm talking to... Uh, you know, when I talk about a sermon like this, I know that, I know that for many of you, uh, it's not making a big impact. I mean, that's okay. That's fine. That's great. But somebody here, there's one, two, three, four, five people in this room that uh, the Holy Spirit is really speaking to you right now. And the Holy Spirit is putting a heaviness on your heart. And you, you haven't wanted to face the, the truth because of this heaviness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now, accept it. Accept the heaviness accept the heaviness not condemnation but the responsibility accept the responsibility accept the responsibility of where you were not self-aware before and pray with me right now pray with me right now and let's begin that journey of God rewriting your story it's never too late for God to rewrite your story I said, it's never too late for God to rewrite your story. I said, it's never too late for God to rewrite your story. And I want God's mercy to rewrite your story. Some churches need God's mercy to rewrite the story of their church. Some organizations need God to rewrite the story of their organization. God is merciful and kind, and He is irrationally gracious. But He can't get to your... He can't get to the thing he needs to get to unless you become self-aware. And then it's like going to the doctor and letting the doctor examine you and he discovers that thing that needs to be removed. Then he can bring healing to your body. Let's bow our heads right now. Um, I I would not ever ask for a show of hands with a sermon like this but I want you in the quietness of your, of your seat there. For if, you're, if you're one of the people the Holy Spirit is really speaking to, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And you don't, don't pray it out loud. Let's just pray it. I'll pray and you, you pray uh, in your mind. Father, I come before you today and you have been trying to illuminate something into my life for a while and I've been resistant. But today, I open myself up to the pos- at least the possibility that that voice is correct. And I need to make an adjustment in how I think, how I evaluate, and how I go forward. And God, I can't do this without your love and without your mercy. And Lord, I can't even face the burden without your love and your mercy. But God, I believe in your mercy so much, and I believe in your grace so much, that I'm not going to fear truth, because mercy and truth came by Jesus Christ. And today... In the name of Jesus, I receive truth and I receive mercy as gifts from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.